Good morning, Millwood. I bring you greetings from Emmanuel Church of Fajera in the United Arab Emirates. Um, I'm really grateful to be here. My wife is grateful to be here. We are very grateful for your support and your prayers. And I know it's an encouragement to the members of our church to know that there are Christians from around the world praying for them, who care for them, and uh, were the Lord to provide an opportunity to know them. So that is a tremendous encouragement to us. It's a tremendous encouragement to the church, and so we are grateful for you all. Um, join me in a short word of prayer. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would help us behold wondrous things from your word. And Father, I pray that uh, your spirit would be present and active in the preaching of your word, that the word of the scripture would be clear, that the gospel would be clear. And Father, I pray that your spirit would be present and active in the receiving of the word. Father, that you would use it to knit our hearts and our lives closer to you, that you would use it to form us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as many of you probably know, the United States allows non-citizens or certain foreign nationals to join the military as long as they are legal, permanent residents of the United States. Now, there are certain restrictions placed on these foreign nationals who join the military. Uh, it is a, is a path to citizenship, so generally these people are working towards citizenship, but until they reach that, they're not allowed to serve as officers in the military, so they're not allowed to be in the upper levels of military leadership. And they're not allowed to work in a job that would give them access to classified information, to some of the classified information of the U.S. government. Well, I'm sure that there are a number of reasons that these restrictions are in place. But at least one reason is because there are questions about the true loyalty of those who may not yet be citizens of the United States, who have not yet taken the oath of citizenship. And maybe they family or friends in their home country, we could, we could understand how that would be a draw on their loyalties or their hearts. If a, if a crisis were to break out or, you know, God forbid, a, a war with their home country, where would their loyalties lie? Even if they truly love and appreciate the United States, which I trust that these individuals do, there's an understanding that there might be something of a divided heart that their hearts might be pulled in two directions, their country of birth where their friends and their family and their old life is, and their new country, uh, the United States, where they are establishing a new life, new friends, and perhaps new family. And there's a recognition that it takes time to develop new loyalties. Now go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 13, 17, and 14, 31, through 14, 31. Uh, I'm going to make an assumption that I would probably not make in our church back in the United Arab Emirates, and that is that you are probably very familiar with the story of the Exodus. Uh, nevertheless, I'm going to provide at least a little bit of brief context to bring you up to speed with, with where we are in the book of Exodus, since we're jumping into something of the middle of it. As you probably know, we're picking up the story as Israel is departing from Egypt, as they are leaving their slavery and bondage in Egypt, and they're journeying into the wilderness towards the Red Sea. So immediately leading up to this text that we're going to be in this morning, Exodus tells the story of God's amazing work of redemption in which he redeemed his people, the nation of Israel, from their hundreds of years of slavery and bondage and suffering in the land of Egypt. Uh, you know the story. God did this through amazing signs and wonders. He inflicted a series of increasingly severe plagues 
on the nation of Israel to see his people released. Those plagues culminating in the death of all the firstborn males of Egypt, both people and livestock. This, this unimaginable suffering and death that was throughout the land of Egypt, which we should say did not touch the Israelites as they spread the blood of the Passover lamb on their door so that the angel of death, the destroyer, would pass over their homes. Well, well this great suffering finally led Pharaoh and the people of Egypt to not just let the people of Israel to go, but to drive them out, to, to give them great wealth to see them get out of their country. Now, Pharaoh had refused time after time after time to humble himself and let the people of Israel go, but uh, God miraculously worked. He was glorified by displaying his power and his might, and eventually Pharaoh, after the death of the firstborn, drove the nation of Israel out. And God redeemed his people just as he had promised that he would do. That brings us to our, our text, which starts in Exodus 13, 17 this morning. Uh, when we come to the people of Israel, redemption seems to be accomplished. They've been driven out. They are finally leaving bondage. They're journeying into the wilderness. They have been set free. Yet, despite the Lord's amazing work of redemption, despite all those amazing signs and wonders that fill the book of Exodus leading up to this point, Despite the fact that they have been set free just as God had promised that they would, uh, the Israelites seem to have something of a divided heart when we come to this text. Uh, you know the story after the Israelites, Pharaoh changes his mind. He and the armies of Egypt go chasing after the nation of Israel in the wilderness. We will see this in our text. And as soon as they do begin to chase after them, as soon as the Israelites see them coming, their first thought is to abandon the Lord and to return to Egypt, to go back and serve Pharaoh, to re-enter bondage in the nation of Egypt. They seem to have something of divided hearts. Now, what we see in the Israelites is not wholly unlike what we experience as Christians. When you became a Christian, if you're here, when you became a Christian— well, you declared that Jesus is Lord and pledged your allegiance and loyalty to him. You said you would follow him. I trust that if you were here in a Christian, you were baptized. You made a public proclamation of those very truths. But if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know that your sinful flesh still tugs at your heart. There are times when you are tempted to abandon the Lord, or at least stop listening to the Lord, to not really faithfully follow after the Lord. It takes time to grow in your loyalty and to the Lord. It's what we call the process of sanctification, and it's a process that will not be complete until we go to the grave or Jesus returns. But we'll see today in the text that despite the, the wavering faith and mixed loyalties of the Israelites, that the Lord is patient and kind. He is gracious to the nation of Israel, and he once again demonstrated his power and his might and his glory that they might grow in their trust and allegiance to him. Uh, so the main idea of, of the text and the sermon is that God sovereignly rescues, protects, and cares for his people, and he demands their wholehearted allegiance. We could say God sovereignly rescues, protects, and cares for you, Christian, and he demands your wholehearted allegiance. Uh, so four points to consider from the text this morning. Uh, they are following the Lord, challenging the Lord, the triumph of the Lord, and fearing the Lord. So following the Lord, challenging the Lord, the triumph of the Lord, and fearing the Lord. 
And so first, we're going to consider following the Lord. Look with me, beginning in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Uh, several times in the opening verses of our text for this morning, it's mentioned that the Lord led the people, or the Lord went ahead of the people in the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire. So the Lord had just finished rescuing the people from the land of Egypt. He is leading them out of Egypt. And the clear implication is that the people should follow, obey, listen to the Lord. God is calling them to give him their, his, their allegiance to him. But the Lord is not just leading the people of Israel here. He's also committed to be present with his people. Uh, we, we know the visible representation of his presence, even as we thought about in that call to worship this morning, is the pillar of the cloud and the pillar of fire. Now, these were not just signs of the Lord's presence. They were also signs of the Lord's tender care and his protection of his people. Of that, in many ways, what his presence is intended to communicate to his people. In Psalm 105, we read that the cloud was a covering for the Israelites. It did not just like give them directions, like you're supposed to go this way. It was a covering for the intense heat of the desert sun. After living in the UAE for a year and a half now, I have a much greater appreciation for how soothing and comforting a cloud is. I did not appreciate clouds as much as I do now. Now, we saw in our text the, the pillar of fire provided light for the people by which they might travel, but also probably heat in the cool desert air. God was not just communicating that he was leading his people, but that he was present with them, and because of his presence, that he was sovereignly caring for them. He was communicating that he was there, he was present, and that they need not fear. Now, Christian, the, the same is true for you as God is present with you today. In an even greater way, we think about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire as these amazing manifestations of the Lord's presence, which they were. But we know, because the Bible tells us it is true, that God is present with us in a much greater way, even today, by His Spirit. Well, the, the text takes pains to, to take two verses out of this amazing, uh, this amazing chapter and a half where Israel goes through the Red Sea to mention Moses taking the bones of Joseph when they depart from Egypt. 
I think the, the Bible includes these couple of verses to remind us of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise to redeem Israel from Egypt just as he promised. And not just as he promised, you know, in the last couple of years as he's doing these amazing plagues, but as he promised even way back to Joseph and even further back to, to Abraham that he would lead his people out of Egypt. A promise that Joseph looks forward to as he asked his brothers to make sure that his bones are taken out of Egypt whenever the people of Israel depart. And so it highlights both God's faithfulness, but it also highlights the, the amazing and the unwavering faith of Joseph that remained faithful and loyal to the Lord amidst just tremendous difficulties in the land of Egypt. And so as the, the Israelites are, are carrying Joseph's bones with them, I think Joseph's faith is to be an example to the Israelites as, as they depart, go into the mystery of the wilderness led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, and they're to be reminded of God's faithfulness to them. Well, unfortunately, it seems as in our text, instead of Joseph being an example to the people of Israel, he serves as a contrast to the people of Israel. Yeah, they look like Joseph initially. They follow the Lord obediently into the wilderness. That had to be a bit scary. He tells them to turn back and camp at the sea. They do that. But even in the opening verses, there are hints of trouble in the hearts of the Israelites. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 13 says that the reason God led them the long way into the wilderness and not the short way by the land of the Philistines, the reason they didn't take the toll road or the shortcut, the easy way to get there, is because God knew were they to face war with the Philistines that they would be tempted to turn back abandon the Lord and return to Egypt. And God knew the people's trust in him was frail. It seemed that despite the amazing signs and wonders and acts of redemption that God had done in Egypt, the people of Israel were still not fully on board. They had divided hearts. Well, this all came to a head when Pharaoh decided to pursue the Israelites with his army, and so that brings us to the second point of the sermon, which is challenging the Lord. Uh, so look with me, starting in verse 5 of chapter 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changing toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Uh, at the, the heart of these verses are the questions of who will Israelites serve? 
Who do they fear? Where will their loyalty and their allegiance lie? And notice that after Israel departs from Egypt, Pharaoh and his officials get a chance to huddle together and they ask themselves, what is this that we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. In some sense, Pharaoh was challenging God for the service, the loyalty, and the devotion of the people of Israel. This is not the first time that Pharaoh has done this either. If you remember back earlier in Exodus, it's actually back in chapter 5, when Moses and Aaron first approached Pharaoh, the very first time they approached Pharaoh and asked that the people of Israel be let go, they asked that the people of Israel be let go to go worship the Lord in the wilderness. Well, Pharaoh's response in Exodus 5 verse 2 is this, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Well, you know what happens after that? Uh, Pharaoh doesn't just dismiss Moses and Aaron. He increases the oppression of the Israelites. He takes away the straw for them to make bricks. He increases their oppression. The Pharaoh is essentially saying, ah, you think you have time to go worship the Lord in the wilderness? Well, if you have that time, I'm going to demand that you use it to serve me instead. Any time that you have to worship or be devoted to the Lord should be used to serve me and the people of Egypt instead. Pharaoh was challenging the Lord for the service and loyalty of the people of Israel. He was challenging the Lord for the devotion of the people of Israel. Now, of course, this was connected to, to Pharaoh's pride, which has been a huge theme throughout the book of Exodus. In chapter 14, verse 8, the, it says that the Israelites were going out from Egypt defiantly, and not as humble servants anymore, not as slaves, but as a victorious nation. It seems that this was more than Pharaoh could bear. And so God gave Pharaoh over to the pride of his heart. And God sovereignly hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he might pursue the Israelites and so that God might triumph over him yet again, so that God would be glorified. And as he says in verse 4 of chapter 14, so all the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord that he, not Pharaoh, is supreme and sovereign in the land of Egypt. Well, perhaps the central theme of the entire book of Exodus is God making his name and his glory known to the Israelites, to Egypt, and through his amazing signs and wonders to all the surrounding nations as well. He did it through the plagues. He did it through his sovereign protection of Israel. And he was not done. He would do it at the Red Sea. God was committed and remains today committed to making name and his known. Well, Pharaoh's pride led him to compete with the Lord for the hearts of the people of Israel. And in our text, it seems as if the people of Israel are torn between their old master, Pharaoh, and their new master, God, the one who had redeemed and saved them, who was calling them and forming them into a people for his own possession. I'll look down in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 14. When Israel saw Pharaoh and his army approaching, they cried out to the Lord. But it was not a cry of trust and dependence on the Lord. That is made abundantly clear by what they actually say to Moses. They accuse Moses, and by accusing Moses, really accuse the Lord of simply bringing them out into the wilderness to die. Now, verse 12, this is what they say. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. 
for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I presume most of you have heard the term fair weather fans before. You know what I mean when I say fair weather fan. If you do not, it simply refers to people who only want to root for sports teams that are doing well. They're fans of the team as long as they are winning, you know, maybe if they're competing for championships. Uh, but when the things are not going so well, they tend to abandon their teams. A few bad years, a bad season, and they are fans of someone else. I mean, can you still call the Cowboys America's team? I mean, fair weather fans change their loyalty to another team who is doing well. That is what it is to be a fair weather fan. It seems a good description of the people of Israel. Israel was content to follow the Lord as long as things were going well. He's protecting them from these plagues. He is, you know, laying it on their enemies, the people of Egypt who are oppressing them. But as soon as Pharaoh and his army were chasing them and they seemed to be under threat, uh, they have second thoughts. Seems as if they seem Pharaoh still as more powerful than the Lord. They had a greater fear of Pharaoh than they had of the Lord who had just rescued them. And so instead of trusting that the Lord would continue to deliver them, they were certain that Pharaoh and his army were going to destroy them instead. And so they desired to serve the one whom they feared, Pharaoh. Their hearts were divided. Their faith was weak. Their allegiance to the Lord merely temporary. They had gone out from Egypt defiantly. But their confidence, their allegiance, and their trust vanished at the first sign of trouble. Israel was a fair-weather people. Now, brothers and sisters, when you think about your own life, you should know that whatever you fear most is the thing that you will ultimately serve. What you fear most is what you will give your devotion to. If you fear the, the judgment of others most, their ridicule or disapproval is the worst thing that you could think of. If you fear the shame of embarrassment, you will be a, a people pleaser. You will seek to please others, whether that is a, a spouse, a child, a boss, friends, neighbors, fill in the blank. You will seek to, to please them far more than you will seek to please the Lord. You will serve others. You will be slow to humble yourself and ask the forgiveness of others because the shame or the embarrassment will be too great. You will be willing to do whatever it takes to keep the approval of others. If you fear failure, most of all, or perhaps simply living a life of insignificance, you'll end up serving your ambitions, your career, your work, whatever that, uh, I guess, goal is in the future. You will work towards that instead of serving the Lord. You will devote yourself to getting ahead and making yourself a success in the eyes of the world rather than a faithful servant of the Lord. If you fear poverty or a lack creature comforts most. You will serve money. If you fear being alone most, you will be anxious about the safety of your spouse or perhaps your children whenever they are away. You'll be willing to date and perhaps marry someone who is not a, a Christian. You will serve those who show romantic interest in you far more than you will serve the Lord. If you fear death or aging, you'll give yourself over to the latest health and fitness trends in an effort to stay forever young rather than devoting yourself to the Lord. 
What you fear most reveals what you love the most or, or what you trust in the most. Now, you may not see this when things are going well. We sometimes don't see these things when things are going well. But our fears are often revealed when things go wrong. When trials come, when, like Israel, we are at the edge of the proverbial Red Sea. If you fear the judgment of others, it may mean that what you love the most is the esteem of others, and that's what you trust will bring you joy. And so when that is threatened, uh, your source of security is gone. If you fear a lack of material comfort, it may reveal that you believe money can provide, you the comfort, can provide the comfort and joy that you truly treasure. That Christians are called to fear the Lord and love the Lord and trust the Lord more than all. And so anything that you fear more or love more or trust more than the Lord is what we call an idol. I trust that you know that idols are not just those things made of wood and stone, but it is anything that we give our love and our devotion to instead of the Lord. Anything that we seek to trust in or place our confidence in more than the Lord. So your fears, your loves, and your desires can reveal the idols of your heart because they reveal what you ultimately trust in, where you find your comfort, where you find your security. So the, the great reformer John Calvin uh, famously wrote, the human heart is an idol factory. We are sinners and it just keeps producing one idol after another, one thing after another where we seek to place our confidence or our trust instead of the Lord. Friends, often our, our fear reveals those idols. But if you are a Christian, God will not leave the idols of your heart unchallenged. And you should know that this is his kindness to you. Now, what did Israel love the most? I'm not positive, but it seems like their own physical comfort and safety. Uh, that's an understandable thing to love quite a bit. But it seems like they loved that more than they loved the Lord. And so who did they fear the most? Oh, they feared Pharaoh the most because Pharaoh and his army seemed like a threat to their physical safety. I think it's interesting that God knew Israel would be tempted to turn back to Egypt if he took them like the toll road route along the land of the Philistines because they would face war. But what did the Lord do instead? He confronted Israel with their greatest fear. He confronted them with an even greater army. The army of Pharaoh in Egypt, perhaps the most powerful army in the world at that time. He left them with no way of escape. He planted them by the edge of the sea where they couldn't run away. They were trapped. They were brought to the end of themselves. Now, they, they should have trusted in God's protection. They should have trusted in God's provision. He had just rescued and redeemed them from the land of Egypt just as he had promised to do. But they still feared Egypt the most. God was exposing and confronting the idols of their heart. God was exposing the divided hearts of the people of Israel. And this was God's kindness to Israel. Now, friends, it is, is far, far worse for God to leave the idols of your heart unexposed and unchallenged. Now, Pharaoh was given over to his pride, and it led to his destruction. And so recognize that the, the trials of your life, the difficulties of your life, may be the Lord's discipline or, or training, helping to open your eyes to the idols of your own heart and helping you to place your trust in him, to help you grow in your trust and your devotion to the Lord. And Moses 
told Israel exactly what they needed to learn to do in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 14. To not fear the things of this world, to stand firm in their faith, and to trust in the Lord's salvation. He told them in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The cries of the Israelites to Moses were the fruits of troubled, anxious, and fearful souls. They did not simply need to quiet their mouths, though they certainly needed to do that. But they needed to quiet their troubled and fearful souls. And what was the balm for the anxious souls, the fearful souls of the Israelites as the armies of Egypt were approaching? It was the power and the goodness and the presence of the Lord. God was essentially saying to them, I alone have the power to save and deliver. Have faith. Trust me. Quiet your troubled, anxious souls. I am on your side. Brothers and sisters, the the same thing is true for you. You can quiet your anxious spirit in the midst of trial as well. And what is the balm for your anxious spirit? Now listen to these verses from the end of Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, the Lord may not give you what you think you need for your own comfort and security, but he will give you what you do need. He gives of himself. He gives his love. He gives his presence. He gives his son to die on the cross for your sins. You can trust the Lord because he has all power, because he triumphs, because he cares for you. That brings us to the, the third point of the sermon, which is the triumph of the Lord. Despite the divided hearts of the people of Israel, God was gracious to them, and he powerfully accomplished salvation on behalf of his people. Look with me at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. 
clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And writing about these verses and writing about the Lord's, deli- or the Lord's deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea, uh, Walter Kaiser, one, one biblical scholar, one biblical commentator, wrote this. The double nature of God's glory in salvation and judgment, which later appears so frequently in Scripture, cannot be more graphically depicted. God said the reason he would harden Pharaoh's heart is so that he might receive glory by means of Pharaoh and his army. And his glory was seen in both the salvation of his people and in the the judgment he inflicted on Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. First notice that God's glory was on display in the, the salvation that he won for his people. In verses 19 and 20, in response to the people's fear of the approaching Egyptian army, the presence of the Lord moved from in front of Israel to between Israel and the approaching Egyptian army. It seemed to be light where the people of Israel were at night and darkness where the nation of Egypt was. God's presence kept the Egyptian army at bay throughout the night. And what a kindness from the Lord and what an amazing picture of God's sovereign love and care for his people. God's presence acted as a a shield and a protection for his people. He parted the waters of the Red Sea as he kept the armies of Egypt at bay and allowed his people to walk through on dry land. He sovereignly accomplished the salvation of his people. And brothers and sisters, I mean, just what we read from Romans chapter 8, we should be reminded that there is nothing that can harm us unless the Lord permits it. And even if something earthly harms us, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Robert Murray McShane, a a well-known Scottish pastor from a couple of centuries ago, had this to say about God's presence and care. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Christian, Jesus is your advocate and defender. He prays and pleads on your behalf so no accusation of the enemy can stand, so that no harm can befall you outside of his sovereign hand. Your eternal destiny and eternal safety is secure and safe in the hands of your loving Heavenly Father. The Lord is with you. God's glory was seen in the salvation of his people, but it was also seen in the judgment of Egypt. God made his name known, and he received glory by triumphing over Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt. Well, look at verses 24 and 25 of the text. The Lord threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And what was the response of the Egyptians to all this? We see it in verse 25. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. 
And God made his name and power and glory known even to the armies of Egypt. They recognized what was going on. It's a bit too late for them, but they recognized what was going on. Well, the Egyptians were in the middle of the Red Sea. He brought the waters back on them and covered and drowned the entire army that went into the sea. Not one of them survived. It's like the football game that ends 70 to 0, or perhaps like 700 to 0. This is not just like the, the first round boxing knockout. It's like the first second knockout. It was complete domination. To go back to that quote from Walter Kaiser, the double nature of God's glory in salvation and judgment, which later appears so frequently in Scripture, cannot be more graphically depicted. Perhaps it cannot be more graphically depicted than the Exodus, but it is at least as graphically depicted and even more clearly depicted at the cross. It is often said that it is at the cross where God's mercy and God's wrath meet, where God's salvation and judgment come together, where love and justice meet. You have probably heard that said, love and justice meet at the cross. What happened at the cross? Well, Jesus served the just sentence that sinners deserve. God's holiness demands that sin be dealt with. It demands that sin be judged. The just penalty for sin is equally horrific as what we see happen to the Egyptian army there at the Red Sea. It is deserving of death. God is the giver of life. Therefore, the just sentence for rebellion against him is death. But in order to show mercy to guilty sinners, God poured out his wrath on God the Son, Jesus Christ, instead. Jesus took the judgment that you deserve. Jesus died as a substitute for all those who would repent of their sins, place their faith in him, pledge their loyalty to him, and follow him. Now, friends, Jesus died that you might receive mercy and forgiveness, that you might pass safely through on dry ground and not be drowned in the sea. Just like God made a way of escape for Israel through the Red Sea, he made a way of escape for you at the cross. It comes by repentance and faith. Mercy and judgment meet at the cross, and they both serve to magnify God's glory, the glory of his holiness, the glory of his justice, but also the glory of his mercy and the, the glory of his love. Friends, know this, that one way or the other, God will be glorified in you. You may not want God to be glorified in you, but God will be glorified in you. If you are here and you are, are not a Christian, know that if you choose to continue to reject God, like Pharaoh did over and over and over and over again in the book of Exodus, if you continue to reject God and his offer of mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, God will one day be glorified in your judgment. His holiness and his justice will be magnified when he judges your sin and gives you your just punishment, which is a, an eternity in hell. But friends, God desires that all people come to a knowledge of the truth. He desires that you would repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. He desires that you give him your full loyalty and allegiance. And if you do that, God will be glorified by showing the riches of his mercy and his grace to you. His judgment for your sin will not be diminished. His glory and judgment will not be diminished. It will just have been taken by Jesus in your place instead. Well, that's the, the beauty of the cross where love and justice meet. 
Friends, give your loyalty and allegiance to Jesus today. I urge you to repent of your sins, to place your faith in him. Uh, I would be happy to talk to you more about that after the service. If you're not a Christian, I'm sure the elders and the members here would, happy to, would be happy to do the same. And that brings us to the, the fourth and final point of the sermon, which is fearing the Lord. Now remember what we have seen so far. Israel was of a divided heart. They quickly forgot their bitter years of service in Egypt when threatened, and they desired to go back. But God was at work. He confronted them with their greatest fear, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. He demonstrated his superiority and his supremacy and his greatness over their greatest fear by defeating Pharaoh and his armies and preserving them through on the other side. He showed his love and his care for his people. And so in verses 30 and 31, we see the results of all this. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw, that the, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The people saw God's great power that defeated their greatest fear, and they came to fear and believe in the Lord, at least for a time. This is what God was after. He was after their complete allegiance. He was after their loyalty. He was after their devotion. He was after their faith and trust. He was after their hearts. Like someone taking an oath of citizenship and renouncing their loyalty to their country of birth and pledging their allegiance to their new country, the people of Israel seemed to be switching and confirming their allegiance to the Lord. They were leaving their old master Pharaoh to serve and follow the Lord. God was leading them to fully forsake Egypt and the ways of Egypt that they had learned for the last 430 years. He was calling them to leave their old master and to, to follow him. And God turned the sinful fear of the people, a, a fear that was expressed towards Egypt and the armies of Egypt, and he turned that sinful fear into a holy fear. And what do we mean when we say a holy fear? What do we mean when we say that we are to fear the Lord. What is a right fear of the Lord? In his book, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? It's a great little short book that I would highly commend. And Michael Reeves had this to say about a right fear of the Lord. Seen clearly, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. The nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore leans on him in staggered faith and praise. Friends, there's much more we could say about that, but it's a great summary of what it means to fear the Lord. Again, if you know the history of Israel, and I trust many, if not most of you do, you know that their fear of the Lord fades, as does their faith in Him. Faith is there as they see the Lord's powerful deliverance, but when that's not so visible anymore, their, their fear of the Lord fades. In the very next chapter, just a few days after this, they grumble against the Lord when they get thirsty in the wilderness. I think we should learn a couple of things from that reality. Well, friends, it reminds you of your own need to be continually reminded of the Lord's goodness and mercy. Uh, we as Christians are a forgetful people. 
We are a fickle people. We need to be continually reminded of God's character, continually renewed by His Word. We need to continually remember the truths of the gospel, God's great salvation that He accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. So we need to remember. A second thing I think we should learn from that fact is that though the Red Sea delivered Israel from the Egyptians, it did not deliver them from their sin. The idols of their heart still exerted much power. But church, Christians, take courage, take heart, because you are new covenant believers. God has written his law on your hearts. Jesus has defeated not just Egypt, but sin and death. You do not just have the pillar of cloud and of fire to lead you and guide you. You have his presence within you, the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. We don't even need to desire to have a pillar and of cloud. We have something greater, the Spirit of God. You have died to sin and been made alive to righteousness. You still need to be reminded of God's character. You still need to be renewed by his word. You still need to remember the gospel. It's one of the reasons that we need the church is so that others will help remind us of these truths. But you have his spirit. You have his word. His law has been written on your hearts. You can rightly fear the Lord by rescuing you from your bondage to sin and death and by so many other acts of faithfulness and mercy to you. God has demonstrated his power. He has demonstrated his love, his care, and his presence. As we read in Romans 8, he sent his son. How will he not in him give us all things? Brothers and sisters, when you are prone to doubt, remember God's mercy and faithfulness to you. Remember that he sent his son to die on a cross in your place. Proven his commitment to you, he has proven his love of you, and he calls you to faithfully follow him, to give him your complete devotion, your complete love, your complete allegiance. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come and first we're, we're humbled by your power, your might, your glory, your justice, your mercy, and your love the perfection of your character that it's displayed in each and every one of your attributes. And Father, we're humbled and, and come and confess that we know that we do not give you our complete loyalty and allegiance. And Father, we are a forgetful and fickle people. We fear what we ought not to fear. We forget your power and your greatness. Father, we desire things other than you. But we pray that you would forgive us for those things and we know that you will in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you would grow us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. You would grow us in our loyalty and allegiance to you, that you would knit our hearts closer to you, that we would desire to follow you no matter where that may lead, no matter what difficulties may lie ahead over anything else. And Father, we pray that we would take up our cross and follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.